I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine Soul. Charles Piller is our guest today. Uh, he writes investigative stories for science. He previously worked as an investigative journalist for STAT, the Los Angeles Times, and the Sacramento Bee, and has reported on public health, biological warfare, infectious disease outbreaks, and other topics from the United States, Africa, Asia, Europe, and Central America. He has won numerous journalism honors, including the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene Communications Award and the First Amendment Coalition Free Speech and Open Government Award. He has authored two investigative books about science and has testified before the U.S. Senate about his investigations of government compliance with the Freedom of Information Act and workplace electronic surveillance. He was a founding board member of the Center for Public Integrity. Charles, thanks for coming on the podcast to talk about your latest groundbreaking investigation. Well, thanks for having me here, and I'm pleased to be here. I want to give our listeners a bit of background about your most recent essay, which covered Alzheimer's disease. Everyone knows how devastating Alzheimer's disease can be. It leads to memory loss and helplessness for many patients and their families. Its victims can't take care of themselves anymore. They eventually become so debilitated that they can no longer walk or interact with the world around them. They need 24-7 care, forget who their friends and relatives are. For people over the age of 70, the prevalence of Alzheimer's is close to 10%. One in three seniors dies with Alzheimer's or another dementia. Currently, more than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's disease. By 2050, that number is expected to be 13 million. A crisis looms on the horizon for us, and treatment remains elusive. As with most diseases, if we can find the cause, we can perhaps find a cure. So if we think about heart attacks, we know blood clots can cause heart attacks or increased plaque buildup from high cholesterol. Well, we can treat those things. And the prevailing opinion about Alzheimer's in my very short medical career has been that, that Alzheimer's is caused by proteins called amyloid beta, which build up in the brain and create a kind of a backup of trash, if you will. I remember learning about this in medical school and in residency only three or four years ago. Where did this theory come from, Charles? And how has this theory directed research funds in the field of, of Alzheimer's? So let's go back to the early history of this disease. So it was first discovered by a German physician, Alwa Alzheimer, back in 1906, who in doing a dissection of a brain from a dementia patient of his, found what are called plaques. So these are these protein clumps that are, as you call them, kind of trash in the brain. And he described these and other characteristics that he saw back in 1906. And eventually it became clear that these, these kinds of plaques and what are also called uh, neurofibrillar tangles in the brain in nerve cells, um, another kind of defect, were characterized with Alzheimer's disease as, in essence, this defines the disease. You don't have Alzheimer's disease without these characteristics, even though a patient might have dementia without having Alzheimer's disease. But Alzheimer's is, of course, the primary kind of dementia that we see. So what happened is that over the years, more and more scientists began to study these plaques, these sticky deposits of proteins in the brain. And 
in the 1980s and 1990s, a lot more was learned about these plaques, partly that they were a particular kind of protein called amyloid protein, and that they were also uh, genetically linked. So in other words, some people with a genetic predisposition produced higher amounts of amyloids in their brains and were thought to be more susceptible to Alzheimer's disease. So if you'll permit me to take one small digression, Alzheimer's is a very mysterious illness in certain ways. And one of the mysteries is why many people who do indeed have these plaques, these amyloid protein plaques, after their death, they're discovered in autopsies. People who have these, many of them do not have the characteristic Alzheimer's dementia. And so one of the things that is kind of a contradiction is that it's not a direct link that if you have these plaques, you have dementia. So it's, it's one of the befuddling and confusing parts of the amyloid beta puzzle and the amyloid hypothesis puzzle. Well, you had asked a little bit about um, funding and support for research associated with this. So in the last few decades, the amyloid hypothesis has been the dominant uh, approach to thinking about Alzheimer's, as you mentioned in your introduction. And what has been seen is that the majority of research funding, both from the NIH and also from corporate sponsors who are doing drug development for Alzheimer's drugs, has been focused largely on studies or drug development that at least to some degree is concerning the amyloid hypothesis. So it has had not just a major role in the thinking about how to approach Alzheimer's disease, but it is to some people had a quite dominant role and the numbers bear that out. What are those numbers? How much money are we talking here that's been funneled into this kind of research? Well, over time, many billions of dollars have been used to explore drug development related to amyloid. And this would be either to remove these amyloid plaques from the brain or to try to prevent their formation. And additionally, the NIH has spent just in the last fiscal year $1.6 billion on studies that discuss amyloids. And as part of that $1.6 billion, they spent a lot of money on one particular aspect of the amyloid hypothesis, which is something called toxic oligomers. And these are a subgroup of amyloid proteins that, unlike these sticky plaques, are actually soluble. So they dissolve in certain bodily fluids and are thought to be extremely toxic to brain cells. And that's why there's been an emphasis on those. And that was something I wrote about in some detail in my article in Science. Yeah, that and that article was really fantastic and, and made waves both in the scientific community and in the media at large. The essay is, is called Blots on a Field, or question, it's question mark, Blots on a Field, question mark, um, for, for our listeners who would like to, to read it. And in it, you tell the story of a potentially fraudulent research paper, potentially because it's not, it seems like it's not quite clear yet. And this paper was from a decade and a half ago and seemed to change how money was spent by the NIH on Alzheimer's research and, and therapeutics. Before we get, I guess, into the details of the story itself, how did you come across this story? How did you come to write it? Okay. Um, 
Back last summer, there was a controversy about a particular drug made by a company called Cassava Sciences. And this drug is called Semufilum, and it's an Alzheimer's drug. And at that time, a report was uh, delivered to the Food and Drug Administration, which had approved early stage trials, stage two, stage one, stage two trials of this drug, and then later phase three trials. So in other words, testing not just its safety, but also its efficacy, its ability to either improve cognition in Alzheimer's patients or slow the rate of cognitive decline. And this paper that was written and delivered to the FDA was something called a citizen's petition. It was it was delivered by an attorney representing two neuroscientists. And I should say, just to be clear, these two neuroscientists also had a financial interest in seeing the uh, drug semufilum fail because they were what's called short sellers. And for listeners who understand the financial markets, these are people who bet that a stock will decline in value and therefore they earn money if that happens. So they had an inherent conflict of interest, but these were credible guys who had a lot of knowledge of the field and were deeply concerned in addition to their their uh, financial interests in the efficacy and safety of the drug. And the reason for their concerns is that they felt that some of the research behind the drug was suspect. They even used the word fraudulent associated with some of the studies. Now, this was back in the summer and fall of last year. And then in December of last year, through intermediaries, I was connected with a scientist at Vanderbilt University by the name of Matthew Schrag. He is a neuroscientist and physician. He studies Alzheimer's disease in his lab, and he treats Alzheimer's patients in his clinical practice. So Schrag uh, and I were talking, and I learned that he was not a signer of the uh, petition to FDA, but he had worked as a paid consultant to the attorney who produced that letter for the, uh, for the two scientists I mentioned. And uh, Schrag's role was to look at the foundational papers behind this drug, semufilum, and to try to understand whether the, there was any credibility to the concerns that the science was unfounded or perhaps even, as the, those two scientists termed it, fraudulent in some cases. Now, what he found was pretty eye-opening. He found that there were dozens of papers that were either directly about this drug or about earlier studies that were leading up to the understanding of its properties and the development of the drug that were containing scientific images that were, to his eye, very likely or possibly altered improperly. In other words, doctored images that would tend to, in general, support the hypothesis of the experimenters, and yet didn't seem to really be real images to him. So he gave his input that was part of this FDA petition. So just to be clear, the FDA petition was was not accepted. They did it had asked the agency to pause the clinical trials of this drug, but they did not pause the trials. They reserved their right to do so in the future. They just said that the petition was the wrong remedy for making that request. 
the company, I should add, also denies any wrongdoing, denies that there was any fraudulent or other improper activity associated with its studies. Now, in the process of evaluating the cassava sciences work, Schrag, who at this point, back in December, no one had ever heard his name associated with this, he was doing this anonymously, and his name was not revealed to the world until my article appeared uh, in July of this year. But at that time, back in December, he was trying to improve his understanding, his techniques of how to evaluate these images for possible doctoring. And it's a somewhat complicated process. It involves using digital imaging tools to increase the contrast or compare images or to reveal other markings within the images that don't appear in the published papers. So it's, it's not rocket science, but it does require some skill and some knowledge. And he was always, uh, like any careful investigator, trying to improve his understanding of how to go about this process so that his findings would be more credible. And he was doing it purely because he continued to be interested in the cassava sciences work and wanted to see if he could contribute more to understanding of that work. So in the process, he looked up at a, a website called PubPeer, which is a kind of a forum for scientists who want to raise concerns anonymously about academic papers that may, in their view, raise questions about the technique, the data, perhaps the scientific images. And he did a search for Alzheimer's on that site. And a bunch of studies popped up that questioned the images as being authentic. And two or three of these caught his eye insofar as he was able to go back to those papers and show that not only were the images cited on this PubPeer website suspect, but also other images within the same papers based on his own work looked suspect to him as well. So he thought, this is an interesting example to help me refine my skills, to look at images, to practice, to become a better forensic analyst of images. And in the process, he started to search for other studies by the main author associated with those studies he found on PubPeer. And that main author was a guy by the name of Sylvan Lesney, who's an associate professor at the University of Minnesota. And as he looked through other Lesney papers, he found image after image, paper after paper, time after time, things that didn't look right. It looked to him as if portions of images had been copied and pasted, as if certain results didn't really appear to have been correct and maybe were enhanced in images in such a way as to support the apparent hypothesis of the investigators. But what really raised alarm bells for Schrag was one certain paper. It was a paper published in one of the most prestigious and important scientific journals called Nature that many listeners I'm sure are familiar with. Uh, this paper published in 2006 was by Lesney and his senior colleague, Karen Ash. So if you'll permit me, I'll just digress for a second to tell a little bit about Karen Ash. She is an illustrious and extremely well-known investigator in the field of Alzheimer's. She has been instrumental in important findings in the field, including participating in some of the work discovering 
the prion, which is a infectious organism that is associated with obscure neurological diseases and uh, was eventually won the Nobel Prize for Stanley Prusiner at the University of California, San Francisco, who Karen Ash worked under when he was making some of his important discoveries. She also was the inventor of a transgenic mouse that produced copious amounts of amyloid proteins and was found to suffer from memory problems that have been compared to Alzheimer's dementia. And this mouse became a vital and important research animal used worldwide in Alzheimer's research. So you're talking about an Alzheimer's heavyweight in in Karen Ash. So this is partly why Matthew Schrag was somewhat alarmed when he saw this 2006 Nature paper. The issue was that this paper was extremely influential. So if, if I may, I can describe now a little bit about what the paper said. Please, yeah. So this Nature paper, you have to understand the context of the history of research in this field at that time. In 2006, so you're talking about the 100th anniversary of the discovery of the disease, you still have no really good treatments associated with amyloids. You still have no preventives, any drugs or vaccines that would help people before they have the disease and and that are targeting the amyloid plaques. And so it's been really a century of frustration. By 2006, even after important findings associated with the nature of amyloids and associated with the genetics of how they are passed, the tendency to produce more amyloids is passed down in families. Despite those very important findings, there had still been no success in coming up with the right drugs or vaccines. And so there was increasing skepticism about whether the field had put too many of its eggs in the amyloid basket. And consequently, there was some increasing doubt that had to be addressed. So into this moment, this important nature paper came. And this paper by Karen Ash and Sylvan Lesney and colleagues did a very fascinating experiment. So they purified a particular protein, amyloid protein, from Karen Ash's transgenic mice. And this protein was something called an oligomer. So it's a, a soluble form of the amyloid protein, one that doesn't form the sticky plaques, but is thought to be very toxic. And it was a special form of this toxic oligomer that they dubbed amyloid beta star 56. And it was named after its molecular weight. That's a relatively high molecular weight because the the proteins have all different molecular weights and 56 is, is a high one. And so what they did is that they purified this star 56 protein from the brains of mice. And then they took this purified star 56 and injected it into rats. And what happened was dramatic. Rats very quickly lost their ability to remember previous learned behaviors, such as finding a particular platform in a maze. And the importance of this was that, as Karen Ash herself said on her website at the time, this is the first substance that showed a direct association between amyloids and Alzheimer's symptoms. 
So in other words, a kind of a cause and effect relationship for the disease that had been eluding researchers. They always thought it was there. They'd always thought that they could prove it and find it. But Karen Ash and Sylvan Lesney did find it in this experiment, or so they said. And the effect was dramatic. There was an incredible editorial within Nature that extolled the virtues of this. There was debate in the field that called attention to its importance. There were an enormous amount of interest in the scientific community to further explore these findings and, and look, look at related kinds of uh, oligomer proteins and to see if they also had similar effects. And in the process, this study, this 2006 paper in Nature, became the fifth most cited study in the scientific literature since it was published concerning basic research in Alzheimer's disease. So you're talking about thousands and thousands of studies published during, during that period, the fifth most cited. So it's, it's hard to understate, I'm sorry, it's hard to overstate the importance that many scientists placed in this. It was kind of breathing a bit of life into a hypothesis that had been facing a lot of skepticism at the time. Pretty incredible. Were there responses when Schrag, I guess, when your article was published and when it became clear that there was some doubt about these dozens of papers, particularly this 2006 Nature paper, did you hear anything or did anyone hear anything from Ash and Lesnie? I mean, did they offer any response to these pretty grave concerns? Uh, that's an interesting progression. Let me say initially that naturally I contacted and strongly urged Ash and Lesney to speak to me before the study was published to describe reasons why perhaps I had the story wrong or that their work was more credible than it seemed based on the analysis that Dr. Schrag did. An analysis that I might add, I validated with numerous experts in Alzheimer's and forensic image analysts, all of whom agreed that grave concerns were, were valid associated with the images in the 2006 paper and numerous other papers, both jointly by Ash and Lesney and also separately by Lesney. So when I approached them, not only did I ask them for an interview, but I revealed to them everything that I had. I, I gave them the entire dossier about their work, and I gave them a list of questions that basically explained to them what my concerns and questions were, and gave them a roadmap to what they would encounter in my story, such that there would be no surprises when the story came out. They both declined to, to be interviewed by me. Lesney actually never even responded to my requests. So what's happened since has been pretty interesting. So um, Lesney has gone to ground. He has not said anything publicly about this. The University of Minnesota has announced that it's conducting an investigation of their work and will say nothing else except that an investigation is, is underway. And Karen Ash, though, has been different. So initially, uh, when she saw my emails to her, she wrote back to me, and she, although she refused to answer specific questions or to be interviewed, she did say that she found the, the questions and the, the information that I provided to her sobering. And then after the article came out, 
she called for a retraction of her own paper, the Nature 2006 paper, because of the concerns. Obviously, saying not in so many words, but but saying by her by her interest in retracting it that the concerns seemed very well supported and valid. She made a statement that she regretted that a colleague of hers might have doctored images and misled her and others. But very interestingly, soon after, she changed her approach. She began to minimize the number of images that were uh, apparently doctored. She would say it was just a couple of images in the 2006 paper, when in reality it was six or seven, and that the changes in the images were dramatic, which she also minimized. Second, she said that the fact that basic data fundamental to her 2006 paper and to nine other amyloid beta star 56 papers, in other words, the fundamental body of work supporting the existence and impact and importance of this star amyloid beta protein that they discovered, that those papers were riddled with, with doctored images, or should I say, images that appeared to be doctored and were found to be credible concerns by many experts. And, and I might add, in two cases, both uh, Ash and Lesney and their colleagues submitted changes to the two of the journals involved and reissued new images, admitting that the earlier images had been improperly processed. So sorry to, to say that um, notwithstanding all of these concerns being shown to be increasingly clear that they were valid or had at least very strong validity in most cases, Karen Ash then took the position that Notwithstanding all of the doctored images, or the improperly changed images, or the uh, the fact that they were replete through uh, most of the work that she did with Lesney and many of the papers that he independently did regarding the Star fifty six protein, she said it didn't make any difference. It didn't have any impact on the experiments, or on her ideas, or on her approach to studying Alzheimer's disease. And I think it should be said that. She's alone in taking that position. There are others who have uh, who have disagreed with the uh, way in which some of this information is presented in my article. In other words, they might feel that the significance is greater or lesser than what I um, portrayed it as through the eyes of Alzheimer's researchers with whom I interacted and interviewed for the article. But no one other than than Ash is saying that. The changing of dozens, scores of of uh, figures within important scientific papers is meaningless to the to the information in the papers. It doesn't make any logical sense, right? And how does something like this happen with with so many papers? I mean, I I can tell you that I do some like peer review for journals, nothing this big, but my own theory about something like this is that. There is a basic level of trust built into this process. There almost has to be because there are so many papers that come out and so many papers that get you know passed around to reviewers to look at that you have to assume the authors are working, are doing their best to be honest and want to be honest and that the, the data they present is real. 
And so your job is not to not to say, prove to me that the data that you've collected is real. Your job is to say, this data, this analysis approach is not right. Your methods seemed off. Your conclusions go too far. This table doesn't really give a good explanation as to what's going on. It's not, this looks, this is doctored. And that's my theory as to why something like this can happen. But I wonder in your research and your investigation, what what do you think happened here? How did this occur? Yeah, it's an excellent question, Aaron. And I've puzzled through this many times, as you might imagine. Um, I think there are several factors involved. The first is um, Sylvan Lesny, who is thought by most to be behind the apparent uh, manipulation of images. He was working uh, at the genesis of this. He was working under Karen Ash's mentorship. He was uh, working as a postdoc or a junior scientist in her lab. And that's when the seminal 2006 Nature paper came out. So I think at the outset, we have to say, yes, you're absolutely right. Science depends on trust. It depends on a sense of collegiality. And for a mentor to a junior scientist, you need to show some of that trust in order for that person to develop their independent thinking and their technique and their skill and mastery as a scientist. There's no doubt of that. Um, At the same time, uh, in order for these to be published in any journal, but particularly a prestigious journal like Nature, Karen Ash has to sign off on them. She has to certify that the data are accurate and correct, that she personally uh, reviewed it. She was the senior author on that paper and others that she co-authored with Lesney that are now suspect. And um, I think ethicists and other scholars in the field would say, and have indeed said to me, that this was an ethical lapse on her part, not to take a more conscientious approach towards at least overseeing the work in such a way that she could possibly have detected what now seem to to people who have looked at the images in the careful way that Schrag and others have to be apparently obvious doctoring. So that's point one. There was an apparent uh, lack of supervision. Uh, Point two is that you're quite right that the peer review process is it's not perfect. Um, and, and it's not a process where um, the expectation is that um, the peer reviewers are going to be experts in image manipulation and will spend the hours it takes to go through and ask deep questions about every image in a paper. So, you know, that's an inherent challenge. I think that the, the next uh, level of, though, of uh, safeguard, the guardrail against this sort of problem is the journals themselves, they have professional editors whose job it is to ensure that not just the authors, but the peer reviewers get it right and to oversee that process. And um, part of that inherently is to look at possible uh, image manipulation. Now, in recent years, that's become more common. It's become uh, more of a routine at journals, but not enough of one. And uh, in years past, there was a, a high degree of complacency. There was a high degree of uh, ignorance about how often this might take place. And 
Honestly, there's no excuse for it. There was no excuse for it even then because it was known that image manipulation occurred. But journals just didn't make it a priority. I think they are doing more with it now. They are definitely doing more with it now. I think it would have been harder in 2022 for this sort of a paper to have made it through the review process. Not impossible, of course, but harder because we have examples of more recent papers in this case and in other cases where the uh, apparently doctored images did make it through the entire process, even in very recent years. But I, I guess I would just say there's these different levels. There's the level of the senior investigator. There's the journals. And also, uh, importantly, there's the funder. So this is something that is pretty interesting and actually a little bit disturbing associated with the Lesney case. So Matthew Schrag delivered his dossier on Lesney's work originally to the National Institutes of Health, which is the funder of major funder of both Ash and Lesney's work. Uh, he delivered that back in January of this year. So they've had it for months. And in May of this year, Lesney was awarded a very prestigious and important R01 grant that refers to a grant that can be renewed for up to five years supporting his work from the NIH. So this is the very agency that is charged with assessing the concerns raised by Dr. Schrag about Lesney's work. And they turn around and award this grant to Lesney during the midst of this problem associated with the very studies that he wanted to continue to work on. So um, there's another element of that that is particularly strange, which is that the administrator on this grant, and he is not uh, the decision maker about uh, awarding the funds, but he's very important in overseeing their use, is a guy by the name of Austin Yang at NIH. And he was a co-author on the seminal Nature 2006 paper that has come into question. So you have an additional layer of a conflict of interest. So all of these things, I think, contribute to the sort of complacency that we see that results in a period of decades of apparently doctored images uh, polluting an entire body of work and uh, affecting an entire field of research. It sounds then, I mean, that to your last point, it sounds that like there's there isn't a curtain there. There isn't a blinder on to who's submitting the grant. And I know I actually just submitted a grant myself, and I'm sure my name is all over it, and people can see that it's me submitting it. I don't have those kinds of connections, but I imagine if I did, I, I would expect that someone would recuse themselves and say, I don't, you know, I can't be involved in this process because I know this person well. How often does that happen that people? recuse themselves in because of this. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm not an expert in the peer review process and all the rules and regulations associated with it. But I will say this, it's very obvious that NIH itself knows who's submitting the grants. And they were the ones who had the highest level of knowledge about the, um, the problems that were identified in Lesney's work. So, you know, at the very least, what I, what I think would have been of greatly warranted and, and this is, it seems so obvious that it's just hard to understand how, how it perhaps wasn't done, is that when these grant proposals are submitted, in Lesney's case, I'm sure he submitted a, a number of 
scientific images similar to the ones that had been identified as being doctored in his prior work. And uh, this is a routine part of the packages that are submitted to the NIH for grants. And so at the very least, if the NIH was in possession of a dossier uh, showing that that uh, dozens and dozens of images in Lesney's work were suspect, that they would have taken a close look at the images in his grant proposal. So um, I think the, the, um, it is true that peer reviewers maybe could be more vigilant and more cognizant of these issues and ask deeper questions and maybe be given the tools to be better at their jobs in that way. But as you say, I mean, a certain amount of trust is inherent to science. But when there's ample cause to suspect someone because of knowledge that's in the hands of the agencies, and then they don't take advantage of that inside knowledge and apply it to the grant proposal that's coming in. Very puzzling. Very. Has the NIH responded at all to, to your article? Have they said anything? Uh, the NIH actually, so of course I tried to interview the appropriate people, including Austin Yang, the grant administrator for Lesney, uh, prior to my article appearing, and they declined to comment. But uh, they did issue, uh, I think it was the National Institute of Aging issued a statement basically kind of supporting their general approach of funding this type of research and its validity. Um, I think it was in response to media attention paid to my article, which, um, you know, a lot of the media attention actually went a lot farther than my article actually stated in uh, challenging the validity of all the work associated with the amyloid hypothesis over the last two decades. Um, it, it, my, my article, of course, was a little, little more nuanced and gave a really clear um, uh, analysis of the debate within the Alzheimer's community about this. It did not, um, did not make any such claims. But, you know, I think the media, um, some in the media didn't catch all those nuances, and I think the agency was a little bit alarmed and issued their statement. I don't see them as being uh, dealing with these issues in a direct way. I think it's probably important to note that they, when they received Treg's analysis, they stated to him that th they reiterated what their normal practices are, which is that they'll review it. If they find it to be credible, they'll, uh, or at least have some likelihood of being credible, they'll deliver it to another federal agency called the Office of Research Integrity, just part of HHS, kind of a sister agency to uh, NIH. And the Office of Research Integrity, however, is, it's a tiny little outfit. It can't review everything itself very carefully. What it normally does is it kicks the, uh, the issue back to the, the university where the alleged or possible wrongdoing took place. And then it's the responsibility of that university to look into it. Now, we don't know what happened. NIH is opaque in what they do. They just say that they've received it and here are our procedures. They don't say if they delivered it to the Office of Research Integrity. They don't say if that office delivered it to the University of Minnesota. But I think we can read between the lines and see that because the university says it's doing an investigation, then it's probably followed that chain of events. I wanted to add, though, that um, this is another one of those guardrails that I think people have reason to be concerned about. So when you deliver it back to the university where the a possible misconduct occurred and asked them to do a full and complete and expeditious look at the problem. 
uh, I think we've seen time and time again that when you ask the institution that has the most to lose and the least to gain from doing that kind of analysis, the general approach is to uh, is to take forever to do it, months or even years to come out with any sort of a report. And then only if misconduct is definitively found will they even make any of that public. And it's not normally made public by the university itself. It's normally made public by the Office of Research Integrity after they go through a further review. This whole process can take years. In the meantime, a lot of times nothing happens. That the researchers whose uh, activities were regarded as possible misconduct are still in place. They're still operating as normal, maybe even getting more grants and doing more of the same work. So it, it raises a real question. I think a valid question for people who are um, concerned about the integrity of the scientific process, that this is the way that it so often transpires. Can you give us maybe some more updates on what ha- what has happened since the publication of your article? We talked a little bit about you know, Ash and Lesney, and maybe even some of kind of what the University of Minnesota and NIH have done. But is there anything else that that we haven't talked about that has happened since since you published the article? Well, um, so it's only been three or so weeks, and so the the interest is has been extremely high. Um, there's been global media attention uh, paid to the article and to the concerns raised in it about that research, and. Um, I think, interestingly, also, there's been a lot of debate within the scientific community, and there's been a lot of um, back and forth among prominent Alzheimer's researchers about what the meaningfulness of this uh, expose about the Lesniash work might have. Um, So uh, I, I think this debate is healthy. It's important. And it's how science works when it's when it's at its best. one of the interesting things is that aside from Ash, who I mentioned earlier, had been defending her work and saying that notwithstanding the multitude of uh, apparently doctored images, that they had no meaning on the results of the experiments or on her ideas, I think no one else has been saying that. Everyone else who has weighed in publicly, to my knowledge, has said that this is a terrible state of affairs, that it um, is, you know, it certainly taints the re- body of research associated with it and calls, calls it very much into question. The arguments, which I think, again, are fundamental to advancing our understanding of Alzheimer's and to, it's the sort of healthy debate that science needs more of, is basically saying, how important is this? How much does it invalidate or call into question important developments within the search for cures for Alzheimer's that are based on the amyloid hypothesis or the toxic oligomer side of that hypothesis. So that's number one. And there are different views of that. Um, The second is, I think it's renewed and supported interest in people who have alternate ideas to what might be the cause of Alzheimer's and what might be its cure. And what I mean is that certain ideas such as brain inflammation, such as infectious agents and others, have been uh, described as also as important and potentially meaningful ways of looking at the Alzheimer's puzzle. Some of these have been starved for funds in part because of the 
dominance of the amyloid hypothesis within the scientific community. And I think when an article like mine is published and it raises questions and calls public attention to the importance of broader thinking, that it's possible that these other ways of looking at the problem might gain credence and support and lead to developments that would be useful in the field, not necessarily to the exclusion of the amyloid hypothesis, not necessarily saying that it's one thing that causes Alzheimer's. It may be a combination of factors, amyloid being one of them. And that's a question that would be well served by invigorating thought, research, and drug development associated with these other possible causes. The example that comes to mind uh, of this is the recent FDA approval of the Alzheimer's drug, Adahelm, um, which targets amyloid beta plaques. I mean, it's not the amyloid. I don't think it was the amyloid beta 56 that um, was mentioned. No, it was not. Um, but it, it is still sort of along the lines of this amyloid beta hypothesis. Uh, and it's going to cost, I mean, millions and millions of dollars um, without actually a clear clinical benefit. I think that one of the trials was equivocal. One maybe showed some benefit. Um, it, is this kind of uh, something that's now being reconsidered, this FDA approval uh, of the drug? Um, I imagine if this debate is happening in the scientific community, there's certainly some thought as to practically what what does this mean? Yeah, I, so the Agihelm uh, issue was pretty interesting. The FDA approved that drug over the objection of its own advisory committee, and it it's a very costly drug, fifty six thousand dollars per patient. So um, there was concern at the time that it would essentially bankrupt Medicare because so many people would be wanting to use it. Um, as it turns out, that hasn't happened. And part of the reason is that doctors quite rightly understood that the efficacy of that drug was uh, either minimal or none based on the studies that were provided. And consequently, they have not been prescribing it. It's only paid for by Medicare for clinical trials. So in other words, um, if you're a normal Medicare patient just wanting to try it out of perhaps a sense of, of uh, desperation because there's no other good remedies for Alzheimer's or, or none that would reverse the course of the disease, um, if you were a patient like that, you might, and had the money, you might be tempted to pay out of pocket. But for most people, they would be relying on Medicare and Medicare won't pay for it. It's because of the very thing that you mentioned, the, the proof was just not there. and I think uh, Medicare did a, a very uh, wise uh, thing to not um, jump in fully on that and uh, essentially raise what I think many uh, physicians and scientists would say is a false hope among patients. You mentioned in an interview with uh, WNYC's on the media that the, this kind of thing, which let's say this is highly suspicious for fraud, but hasn't definitively been proven fraudulent but that this kind of thing does occur in other circumstances. And, and you've been covering some of these circumstances. So in 2021, uh, in science, you wrote about two retracted papers from the Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine, very prestigious journals, both of which were retracted, but nevertheless, they were cited widely. In what other circumstances has something like this taken place? Mistakes made. And in any human endeavor, 
there's can be corruption or fraud or misconduct of various kinds. Um, science is no exception. Scientists are human beings. There's a lot of competition for money, for prestige. Um, and consequently, there are going to be people who cut corners or do something improper to get a leg up. Um, I would say that just like most other human uh, endeavors, there that it's relatively rare. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of wrongdoing in the world. Science is no exception. We need to be vigilant about it. But we also should realize two things. One is that um, notwithstanding the weakness of some of the guardrails in situations like this, there is um, an ethos within the scientific community of uh, of essentially testing results in other places trying to reproduce things, and trying to understand whether important results are indeed valid. There, there is a process of self-correction. There is more so than many other realms of human endeavor. There's a belief that the good ideas, the best ideas, will be proven out by the, by the process of scientific exploration. And ideas that don't, don't, merit, um, don't merit the sort of attention they maybe initially get will fall by the wayside. Um, so I've written many times about um, these sorts of problems, and the results of my stories have been mixed. I mean, I, I recently wrote about a, a, a researcher in Canada who's an expert on the testing of, um, of nutritional supplements, among other things. And um, there was a lot of evidence raised that he had engaged in a, a wide range of apparent uh, fabulism plagiarism, various kinds of lies and misstatements, and even somewhat bizarre, strange kinds of things that seemed like he was just, to some, seemed like he was making it up as he went along. And uh, the university investigated the guy at some length and then said, oh, we don't have enough evidence to do anything about this. So he got pretty much a slap on the wrist. Now that's being appealed through the, the authorities there. But the point I'm trying to raise is that um, the, this, the conditions for correcting these kinds of problems in science are imperfect. It, it, it doesn't mean they're useless, but they're imperfect. I'll be very interested to see what happens in the Lesney Ash case, in part because this is a case that has received such widespread attention that there'll be a lot of eyes on what happens. It's going to be difficult for the institutional authorities, namely the NIH, the university, and others who, in the journals, who have been involved in greenlighting this kind of uh, work in the past, um, it'll be interesting to see how they respond to the public attention associated with this. My, my view is that um, there, there's sort of a danger here that I've encountered, and I, I, I feel badly I've thought about it many times. And that danger is that when uh, apparent misconduct is revealed in a story like mine, it's inevitably picked up on by people who are trying to attack the validity of science more generally. They're trying to say, oh, if this one body of work was uh, false, then all the work that has ever been done in this area is false, or all science should be considered to be unbelievable. And I've seen a lot of this in the social media. There's been some attention paid by um, the likes of Tucker Carlson and others in the 
far-right anti-science media who have raised these kinds of points in various ways. And I would just say that even though that I'm personally um, very troubled by hearing that that sort of commentary, um, I, I really don't see that people like me have any alternative but to continue to try to explore and expose possible wrongdoing in science. It's only by that exposure, by the ana, antiseptic effects of sunlight on a problem, that will help people understand what's going on and let the self-correcting, valid, and important elements of the scientific world that care deeply about truth and care deeply about moving forward and helping patients who might be beset by problems like Alzheimer's, for them to kick into gear and to be able to take action that will benefit all of us in the long run. Yes, exactly. I I couldn't have said it better. I think the truth matters here. And if if we try to cover these things up or mitigate the the kind of severity of the fraudulence or the um the fatuousness of these findings, then we're really doing a disservice to to science and to patients. Our goal is our goal is to seek truth um and and call out things when when they're not true. Um so Charles, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for all the investigatory work that you do. Um, and uh, we'll watch with bated breath as this story unfolds. Thank you so much, Aaron. This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.